15, and uh, there should be some Bibles in front of you. Uh, if you have a phone, you can uh, download an app fairly easily. Uh, that'll get you to uh, copy the scriptures. Um, around here, we're using the CSB version of the Bible, so if you're visiting with us and you're like, ah, that sounds a little bit different than what I'm reading, no big deal. Um, most of the uh, concepts will be clear regardless of what English translation you're following with, but if you're curious, uh, the CSB is the version of Scripture I will be reading from uh, this morning. I don't know if you caught it uh, in the opening. Odds are like 20% of you did. Uh, Brandon announced next week we're going to do things a little bit differently, which if you were tracking with the time, you're like, this means Matt's preaching like a 25-minute sermon next week, which you're right. Uh, Lord willing, there will be. Uh, we're going to let baptism preach uh, some of the sermon for us. And uh, what that means for you in first service is you really get to coast. Like, just show up at the normal time and just hang in here a little bit longer, all right? We're going to uh, take an, uh, a little bit of an odd intermission after first service. We're going to allow all the second service people to enter, and then we're going to baptize and sing a song together. And uh, this is one of the first times we've done baptism since we moved to two services. And rather than, like, baptizing some people in half and some people in the other half, or like doing a video testimony of the baptism. Just like, let's try to like get everybody together again. And uh, so we'll see how it goes. It may be a total bust and terrible, and we'll figure out some other way to do it next time. Uh, but we're going to experiment uh, with it next week. So come prepared uh, to hang in a bit, uh, bit longer uh, with us. We've all uh, likely been in places uh, where our only motivation to make it through the thing that we were doing uh, was having something to look forward to on the back end. Recess has gotten many a young man through math class, for example, right? Ice cream prompts action from whiny kids. A vacation motivates workers to get up at 6 a.m. consistently. Retirement supposedly makes 40 years worth it. And none of you are thinking this, but an afternoon at the lake makes enduring a church service all the more bearable, right? We're motivated by something on the horizon when whatever the thing that we're doing in the moment isn't all that pleasant or maybe a bit difficult. We are people who need something to look forward to, which uh, things that are not all that pleasant is a bit of an understatement for the world that we live in right now. We sing a song around here that asks the question to which the congregation responds, uh, do you feel the world is groaning? And we answer back, we, we do. And there have been numerous loud groans since we were in this room together last, not the least of which is a horrific school shooting that leaves kids and teachers uh, dead and leaves community reeling, not the least of which is a report of sexual abuse among churches and denominational leaders that publicly professes what many have known to be true, which is secret sin that is horrific. These loud groans in a broken world testify to the fact that if we are going to endure, we will only endure because we have something on the horizon to look forward to. And these national stories don't even touch the various nuanced pain that each of us carries with us this morning. Uh, we feel the groaning of the world and loved ones who are suffering or dying, marriages that are unraveling, mental health crises that are common, rebellious teenagers, broken relationships, lies, deception, the list could go on and on. 
If we're not careful, all of this pain can cause us to be cynics or can crush us under the weight of despair. Unless God has structured the world in such a way that his people have something to look forward to. And that's what our passage this morning presents for us. It gives us a bit of hope. Not a bit of hope, but actually great hope. Because Jesus holds out for us the promise that a ragtag group of no-names are going to gather for a grand banquet at the invitation of a great king. The last verse in our section from this morning's passage serves as a bit of connective tissue to this idea. Look in verse 24 of Luke chapter 14. This is set negatively, Jesus says, I tell you that not one of those people, and we'll define those people here in a minute, not one of those people who are invited or were invited will enjoy my banquet. And then if you glance back up in Luke 13, beginning in verse 29, we see the, the, the opposite of this. There are some who were invited who aren't going to get to enjoy. And then verse 29 of Luke 13, there are some who are going to come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and they're going to share the banquet in the kingdom of God. The idea is of an unexpected banquet that provides hope and judgment. This morning, I've got three points that we'll make from our text, Luke 14, verses 1 to 24. Make these, we'll read the text, provide a bit of commentary, and then on the back end, I'm going to very quickly touch five quick points of application for how does this text provide hope for us in the midst of a pretty bleak world. First, those who eat with Jesus now might not feast with him later. Those who eat with Jesus now might not feast with Jesus later. Luke 14, beginning in verse 1. One Sabbath, when he went in to eat at the house of one of the leading Pharisees, they, these religious leaders, were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a man whose body was swollen with fluid. In response, Jesus asked the law experts and the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not. But they kept silent. So he took the man and he healed him and he sent him away. And to them he said, which of you whose son or ox falls into the well will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could find no answer to these things. Verse four is almost funny tucked there in the middle, right? We have this miraculous act of healing that's become so commonplace in Jesus' ministry that it's mentioned almost as an aside. The purpose of these six verses is for Jesus to hold up and give some instruction on the Sabbath and particularly some condemnation or challenge to this group of religious leaders represented by this one of the leading Pharisees that we're introduced to in verse 1. And notice in verse 1 as well that the entire section is framed around eating. Jesus eating with a Pharisee, with a whole bunch of other religious leaders looking on. If you've been in and around the church, you know that much gets made of Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. In fact, he holds that up as an illustration of coming to seek and save those who are marginalized. But we shouldn't miss the reality here that Jesus also ate with those who would reject him as king. 
Here he's eating with these religious leaders. And the point is clear, and it's the point I made last week, that proximity to Jesus does not equal relationship with Jesus. These religious leaders are close, but they're not his. And in many ways, this introduction is meant to reorient the reader of Luke to those, this group of people who are going to miss out on the great banquet, this group of religious leaders and Pharisees. And here in our text this morning, this group attempts to trap Jesus. But this time, it's actually Jesus who puts his actions on full display. They've been kind of attempting to be sneaky and catch Jesus and breaking a forbidden law. But this time, notice in these six verses, it's Jesus who calls the man forward. He notices something here, and he uses this as an opportunity for a teaching lesson. Hey, you come and watch. And then he poses a question to the Pharisees about this suffering man. Can, can I heal him on the Sabbath? Jesus is holding out for them this, what is going to be a moment of condemnation. And he's doing it in full view. Uh, if you've ever raised a three-year-old, you've seen something like this. They, they know something that's off limits. And as soon as something is defined as off limits, they're going to flaunt their ability in front of you to see if you're going to hold the line here. Well, here, this is Jesus flaunting his Sabbath ability in front of the religious leaders and the Pharisees in an attempt to trap them. The religious leaders have said that work on the Sabbath was out. But Jesus knows that they've missed the mark. The goal of the Sabbath was to train people to love God and to love one another, to enjoy the good gifts that he's put in the world, and to rest from work and trust him to provide. The leaders here have turned this privilege into a burden. They're worshiping the law they've created rather than the God to whom the law was meant to point. In other words, they are eating with Jesus, but they are not feasting on relationship with Jesus. And this type of warning, friends, stands as a stark uh, gut check for you and I. In fact, it frames warning passages like the one we find in the book of Hebrews. Here I'm reading from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. It's impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, those who tasted the heavenly gift, those who shared the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, but have fallen away. This is because, to their own harm, they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding Him up to contempt. Contempt, I'm sorry. For the ground that drinks the rain, that often falls on it, and that produces vegetation useful to those for whom it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it's worthless and about to be cursed. And at the end, it will be burned. Notice the overlapping language in Hebrews 6 to our passages from Luke 13 and 14. The prominence of the imagery of eating with God. They've tasted God's good word. They've tasted the power of his work in the world. And yet, as Jesus holds up in Luke 13, they will be cut off and burned. They've experienced, but they've not feasted. And therefore, they will spend eternity in a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, as Jesus says in Luke 13. 
This is a stark warning, I say to those of us in the room, because by virtue of us being in this room this morning, we are tasting the good gifts of God's grace. We have rich access to the truth of the gospel. But like the parable of the soils, there are some in this room who are going to fail to produce fruit and prove to not be his disciples. You will spend weeks, perhaps years, eating with him, only to miss feasting with him for all eternity. But it seems that the next few verses that Jesus was exposing something more fundamental about the heart of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Notice he says, and this is a point I made previously, he holds up their son or their ox that falls in the well. And he says, you're going to instinctively care for that one, even on the Sabbath. In other words, you're applying rules in ways that benefit you. You'll work to heal, to help those who are close to you, those who are like you, those who help you. But when it's broken people, when it's sick people, demon-possessed people, then you want to slice and dice about the rules of the law. It's no wonder Jesus calls these people hypocrites. This is hypocrisy writ large. And Jesus exposes their hypocrisy in this next section, verses 7 to 14. If I were to isolate a central theme of this paragraph, it would be this. Those who fight to get to the front of the line will often be exposed as frauds. Those who fight to get to the front of the line will often be exposed as frauds. Perhaps you've seen this play out as well if you've ever been to a, uh, let's say, a backyard cookout or a neighborhood cookout or a park cookout, it's even better. And you look up and the prayer has been prayed and the line is beginning to form and there's this random 11-year-old in line. You're like, dude, you don't even belong here. You're not even in our family. Who invited you? right? And the kid looks up, well, I mean, there were burgers out, and there was an invitation to food, and you don't belong here. Now, to most 11-year-olds, are like, ah, go ahead. But if it's like a 45-year-old, you're like, dude, go get your own food, right? This isn't your cookout. Allow that to frame Jesus' parable, verse 7. He told them a parable, told this to those who were invited. When he noticed how they would choose the best places for themselves. When you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet, don't recline at the best place. Because a more distinguished person uh, that, you may have, that may have been invited uh, by your host. The one who was invited, both you may come and say, give your place to this man. And then in humiliation, you will proceed to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and recline in the lowest place. So that when the one who is invited you comes, he will say, friend, move up higher. You'll be honored in the presence of all the guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. He also said to the one who invited him, when you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or your sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbors, because they might invite you back. Then you're going to be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, or blind. Then you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. The picture here is a, a formal banquet. We're not talking a backyard cookout. 
we don't have a ton of these settings in our society, uh, at least not the kind that most of us would be uh, invited to. But you imagine a formal dinner, a distinguished banquet that's arranged with the most important people in the front and the least important people in the back. Those closest to the front are seemingly closest to the one who is throwing the banquet. So in verses 7 through 9, Jesus pictures someone who saunters into the banquet and takes the seat of highest honor. Then later, someone comes in who is actually more important, and the host has to displace this man. Say, move back. It's a humiliating move, right? Not only because the man would have to move to the back of the group, but because everybody else is watching on. It's shameful. His status would be seen by all. And so Jesus' conclusion is clear. People should take the back. They should take the last seat so that when the host shows up, he invites them to move up. He honors them. The host shows their value by honoring them. They don't honor themselves. Or in verse 12, Jesus warns against inviting people to a banquet who deserve to be there. People who have money, position, or power. So then when they get invited, they flip the invitation back to you. They invite you to their party. You've probably had this happen to you. Someone does something nice for you and you think, ah, junk. Now we got to have them over to our house, right? They invite you to a nice party and they pull out the fine china. Everything's set up well. And you're like, man, man we were planning on reheating some burgers and dogs and having you guys over, Right? There's pressure packed in these relationships. Jesus says the return invitation then is your sufficient reward. In contrast, he suggests in verses 13 and 14 that we should invite people who can't repay us anything because then God will reward us in his time and his way. The implication of both stories is clear. When you jockey for the front of the line, or when you only invite those who, pay, who can pay you back, the invitation is actually self-serving. And over time, you're going to get exposed as a fraud. It's going to become clear that the only reason you're doing these things is for yourself and not to honor the great king. You might say it some different ways. People who desperately want to get to the front most often don't deserve to be there. Or said a different way, if you want to look for true leaders in this world or in the church, you need to look in the shadows and not the spotlight. Godly, honorable people aren't those who jockey for positions, and sadly, often, those who jockey for positions prove to be frauds. This is the great danger of the public scandal facing the Southern Baptist Convention at this moment. Sexual abuse is surely a heinous evil. But so too are people who know of this type of evil and protect their power or their position at the expense of caring for those who are weak or broken. Power and position are gifts to be used in service and sacrifice for others not to self-servingly grandstand at your own position. 
When we don't, when we don't use power and position in God-honoring ways, we should be warned from this text that it is only a matter of time before we will be shown to be frauds, either in this life or in the life to come. You're seeming to do good simply to promote your own selfish interest. Instead, you should give thought to throwing a party and inviting people who have no business being there, being content to sit on the sidelines. Now, apart from the motive of this just being a nice thing to do, serving others, what in the world would compel someone to throw a party and invite the poor, the marginalized, the blind, the lame? to to do such a self-sacrificial action. Luke's glad you asked, because he tells us one final parable that answers that question. Verse 15. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said, Blessed is the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And then he told him, A man was giving a large banquet, and he invited many. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who were invited, Come, because everything is now ready. Without exception, they began to make excuses. First one said, I've bought a field and I must go to see it. I ask you to excuse me. And another said, I have five yoke of oxen. Uh, I'm going to try them out. I ask you to excuse me. And another said, I just got married, therefore I'm unable to come. So the servant came back and reported these things to his master. Then in anger, the master of the house told his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the city and bring here the poor, the maimed, the blind, the lame. Master, the servant said, what you ordered has been done and there's still room. And the master told his servant, then go out to the highway and the hedges and make them come in or compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, not one of those people who are invited will enjoy my banquet. Third point, those who hunger now might feast forever. Those who hunger now might just be the ones who feast forever. The motive given here in the text for radical deference to others is the picture of God's love for his people. He says that we should throw parties like this because that's exactly what he's doing in his work in the world. In verse 16, he speaks of a group of people who've been invited. These are the ones in the previous story who could repay. Here the mention is likely both the Jewish nation as a whole and specifically the religious leaders and the Pharisees to whom this passage is being addressed. These are the people who had a standing invitation to the feast of God. In fact, one could rightly make the argument that the entire story of the Bible is a story of feasting with God. The story starts with ample provision in a garden. Every tree I've given you to eat, except one that's off limits. You can eat and enjoy everything that I've provided, and you can do that feasting with me in a pristine world. The serpent's deceptive words invited creation to feast elsewhere, to take and eat, except this time not in fellowship with God, but to break relationship with God. The twin bite of the forbidden fruit testified to the fact that all subsequent humanity would rather dine with the devil than feast with the Father. 
And this deadly choice continued to play out, often with famine, literally the absence of food, being testimony of the judgment of God. Yet God continued to display his desire to eat with his people, sometimes literally feeding them with bread from heaven every morning. The people of God, the nation of Israel, of all people, should have learned that God is where my food comes from. And yet, in Jesus' day, the people continued their propensity to reject God's food. Jesus himself presents his ministry as bread sent from heaven, sent to satisfy the spiritual hunger of his people. Table fellowship over a meal defined Jesus' ministry, a living picture of the reality that God longed to fellowship with broken sinners. And at his death, he held forward, take and eat, a much greater example, bread and wine, a picture both of his broken body and blood and the fact that those who have eaten of his spiritual fruit can forever be satisfied. And the coming world is pictured as a great banquet, one in which God's people will forever feast with him and enjoy his presence. There's coming a day when sermons will stop and the full picture of God's goodness will be displayed in table fellowship with the triune God forever. And it's not any old banquet. It's a banquet fit for a king. So who gets to come? Well, it's not those you think. It's not the strong. It's not the religious. It's not the rich. It's not the powerful. In our passage this morning, they've got a whole bunch of excuses. They know the offer of the banquet and don't miss that reality. But they choose to stay away. And it's silly things. Fields, oxen, a new marriage. It's the cares of this world that keep them from the banquet. Here, C.S. Lewis's masterful quote from The Weight of Glory comes to mind. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So how does God respond to mud pie eaters? Fields, oxen, new marriages. He simply extends the offer to others. The banquet will not go to waste. The food is too good. So, when those who are should be stuffed are actually starving, he says, I will take my food and feed those who are actually hungry. He invites the weak, the marginalized, the broken. In fact, it seems from the text, the invitation is, whoever you can find who will come. The offer is available to all, and it's an offer worth looking forward to which leads to a few quick points of application. How does the fact that we have something to look forward to change the way we look at things we don't want to see? How does the offer that we have something to look forward to change the way we engage, uh, we look at things that we don't want to see? Five quick points with almost no commentary. Uh, 
Since we have something to look forward to, we can trust that God will expose all wrong and make all right. Since we have something to look forward to, we can trust that God will expose all wrong and he will make all right. Which means I don't have to feel the weight of making everything right in this world. I can rest in God's good wisdom. Secondly, since we have something to look forward to, we can humbly acknowledge that many who seem to be first will prove to be last. I can humbly acknowledge that my eyes are deceptive, which means, as sad as it is, that I can be realistic about the hypocrisy of others. Thirdly, since I have something to look forward to, I can invite anyone, anytime. I can invite anyone, anytime to the banquet, which means I don't have to size up who's fit for the kingdom of God. Anyone, compelling, whoever wants to come. Fourth, since we have something to look forward to, we, I, can endure hardship with hope. I can endure hardship with hope. It means that I can move forward with optimism, even if my current situation is frustrating or bleak. And then lastly, since we have something to look forward to, we can create rehearsal dinners for the great banquet while we live on this earth. We can create rehearsal dinners for the great banquet while we live on this earth. That means when I have people over to my home for table fellowship, I can attempt, as much as it depends on me, to make that a little slice of heaven on this earth, where joy and feasting and laughter are normative, where love and kindness are extended. It means when I gather with the church that this can become a little rehearsal dinner for the grand banquet that awaits. Never get there fully, never get there perfectly. We're always going to limp with the stain of sin. And yet, we can have these glimmers of God's grace in the midst of a world of suffering because we create rehearsal dinners for the great banquet on this earth. And I, I think, friends, that's something like what the Lord's Supper is meant to be. It's meant to be a little snapshot for us, like a rehearsal dinner, of, of what we will ultimately do when we feast with God forever. So I'm going to invite our servers to come. They're going to distribute the elements, uh, just a, a little wafer and some juice that for us is a representation, a picture of far greater feasting that we will do one day. It's a meal that was instituted by Jesus on the night he was betrayed when he held out to his disciples this bread that was broken, this blood that was poured out that would serve as a represent, representation of his body and his blood. And because this is a rehearsal dinner for the great banquet, those who feast on this meal should be those who have received the gift of salvation offered through Jesus, that you've chosen to 
bend your knee in faith and repentance, to turn to Jesus, to receive him as your spiritual food. If that's not true of you, during this meal, there'll be pastors and wives in the back, and we would love to talk to you about how you can know Jesus as your spiritual sustenance. If you have, if you've tasted and received the good gift of salvation through Christ, let me invite you to hold these elements, and as you hold them, that they would feel weighty in your hands because they remind you of the price that was paid for your salvation, and they remind you this morning that you have something great to look forward to. You've got something really good to look forward to. You've got a banquet awaiting you. And would that stir our affections, joy, and hope in the midst of life in this world? I'll give you a moment to prayerfully reflect. Once everybody has the elements, I'll read from Luke's gospel, and we'll take the elements together. Father, we give you thanks that Satan's take and eat in the garden so many years ago was not the final word, that our sin is not the final verdict, that you sent your son, uh, bread from heaven, uh, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Uh, we thank you that his body was broken, his blood poured out to pay the price that our sin deserved. We thank you that when you hold out this meal to us, this take and eat redefines our eternal destiny and it redefines our hope in this world. And we thank you this morning that it serves as a little foretaste of the taste and eat that we will enjoy forever. Thank you that there's a great banquet that awaits the people of God. And it is not for those who deserve to be there. In fact, many of those who seemingly deserve to be there will not. We thank you that it's for the poor, the marginalized, the broken, the maimed. Those who have a past of sin, brokenness, and failure. Those who think they don't deserve it, don't add up. We thank you that your economy functions differently than ours. And your invite lists are drawn up in ways that we cannot understand. We thank you in ways that exalt your power and your glory. You choose to invite people to your banquet who have no business being there. And that includes us. So as we take and eat, would you stir our affections for the day that we will take and eat forever.
Jesus took bread when he'd given thanks. He broke it. He gave it to them and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this, church, in remembrance of him. And in a similar way, he took the cup after they had eaten and he said, this cup is poured out for you and it's the new covenant in my blood. Take and do in remembrance of him. And now that we've prayed, now that we've reflected, we celebrate with joy the promises of a coming day when we'll feast with God forever and a new world that he's created. So join me as we stand and sing, we will feast in the house of Zion.